Hello my guys, my gals, and my non-binary pals. Welcome along to today's episode of the Peter Greenwood Show podcast. My name is Peter Greenwood. I am delighted to have your company with me. And today's podcast is a little bit different because I went up to the city of Edinburgh and I met people in person. I spoke to them just like the old times. I shook hands, even though I don't know if we're actually supposed to be doing that. So if they're not supposed to be doing it, then I apologise, but let's not do it again. Anyway, I have got three interviews for you today. We are starting off with a man called Will Close, who's doing a show called Mediocre White Male. Take a listen. This is the Peter Greenwood Show, and I am here in the salubrious confines, as Greg Proust would say, of the <laughs> Assembly Roxy. Not the Assembly Rooms, the Assembly Roxy, if anybody's asking. I have a man to my right. Hello, sir. Could you tell me your name and what you do, please? Hi, Peter. I am Will Close, and I am doing the play Mediocre White Male at the Assembly Roxy. What is Mediocre White Male? Mediocre White Male is a one-man play um, about an actor working in a rural, dilapidated scare attraction. And over the course of the hour-long monologue, he tells a story from his youth, really. Um, It becomes apparent that a loved one of his has passed away recently, and it's a nostalgic reflection on past love, which takes increasingly dark turns as it progresses. You said there's a monologue. Is it just mm. you in this show? How many people are in it? Yep, it's just me. Yeah, it's just me. It's the first time I've done something like that before. Now, this is going to be kind of a very simple question. I apologise for its simplicity. How do you remember an hour of dialogue? <laughs> I don't really know. I try not to think about it because sometimes the idea that when you're about to start, you've got this hour of material which you know you're about to just splurge you've got to go out there and talk for an hour and try and be interesting and hopefully engaging and fun at times um i don't really know i've certainly found it the most challenging thing i've ever done for for that reason i think and and it's also quite invasive even in like my sleep and things like that because you just you keep thinking about oh, God, what comes after that? And what's before that? And it's like, you have to just think of it almost like a piece of music. Once it starts, you'll know what's next because it just, it flows. How long did it take to get to that process, though? Because here's the thing, I've done radio for about 10 years this year. It's my 10th anniversary in radio. And I've been this close to people who are very dear friends to me. And I've been like, so you're here? How are you today? It's gone completely out of my head. So... How do you do it? Uh, I suppose it's incremental from when you start taking on roles, you know, when you first start acting and you get acclimatised to having, you know, a page or two or ten pages or a more prominent role. And for the last few years, I've mainly been doing... Well, I did a a five-hander called Golem um, with the company 1927, which we toured for about two and a half years. So I did that show over 200 times. And then that's a long time to do anything. It's a long time to do anything. Um, and then one of the my cast members from that rose, we formed a car- character comedy double act. So there were two of us then, and, and we did a couple of shows, a couple of fringes, um, toured it a little bit. And so there, that was a two-hander for an hour. So I suppose it's for me, it's been a bit of a gradual process in that sharing the stage for an hour with just one other person and then doing it on my own. I suppose is a natural next step to try, but. Um, I, yeah, I don't really know the answer I, other than <laughs> perseverance and trying to think about it too much, let it happen. I want to know, where did this story come from? What's its origin mm. story? So, I, when I was 18, I had a summer job at Warwick Castle, 
um, I'm from the West Midlands, and I was a ghost. Um, I was a ghost in a in a scare attraction, and it's. I was only there for about eight nine weeks over the course of that summer, but it struck me straight away as a really interesting environment to tell a story in, and I've always had it in the back of my mind because. It's such a peculiar cast of characters. You know, you have some people who have worked in scare attractions for 20, 30 years, and, that, and that's their life. And then you've got young actors who are maybe thinking about getting into it, or students just looking for a DOS job for the summer. It's, it's, it's a real strange collection of people. And so I've had this idea knocking around for a long time um, about trying to set something there. And originally, myself and the co-writer, Joe, had an idea for a sitcom potentially set in a, in a castle like that. And that never went anywhere after we wrote an initial treatment. So it sat on a shelf for a couple of years. And then I just got in touch with Joe yeah, over two years ago now and said, why don't we kick this around as a play? Maybe we're just me. And so it, it grew from there. What's been the challenges of putting the show together? Especially doing these trying times. Yeah, yeah, this year it's been, I mean, very hard to predict. Because we had such short notice, you know, when things were finally told, okay, they can happen, and this is how they can happen. It was probably June. Um, whereas normally, normal fringe year, you know, you'd be booking your flat in January, and you'd be really progressing everything well six months in advance easily. So for us, the difficulties were not having the, the solid ground, not from any fault of the assembly, just everyone was waiting on these answers from government, basically, and, and the council. Um, and that had a drip-down effect. So for us, what saved us was actually because the play was supposed to come last year, although it wasn't match fit and it, we still wanted to revamp the script a little bit, it was pretty much ready. You know, it was 90% there. So we felt reasonably flexible that even if we only get five weeks' notice, we think we can take it. So that's what saved us. But it's, it's been very hard because you've never known when and where you can do it. You know? And what's it been like coming back to the Fringe in, I don't want to say a diminished capacity because mm. it's still the Edinburgh Fringe, but it's, it feels slightly smaller. Yes, yeah. There's no two ways about it. It is significantly smaller. I mean, I, I was here for three years in a row. I wasn't here, obviously, last year and the year before, but I'd done the previous three to that, and I think it was, I think it was over 5,000 shows, whereas I think this year it's you know, more like 500 you know, it's, it's much, much That's a smaller. significant drop. It's a significant drop. Um, so it's very different. I've never experienced it like this before. Uh, obviously, there's no flyers. There's no... You know, the advertising is right down, which is, I think, probably quite a good thing. It makes it all less stressful. Certainly better for the environment with the reduced printing. Um, and it has a bit less of a manic air, which I think is a good thing. Uh, if anything, actually, this year, there's you know, potentially not quite enough shows. I think the demand is there. I think people want to go out and see things. So I, I hope next year it can maybe have a bit of a blend. My worry is it'll come back with 8,000 shows and it'll be an absolute circus. But yeah, like people will look at the numbers from this year and be like, okay, full steam ahead. Yes. Moving the imaginary control that everybody has in front of them. <laughs> yes. Like, there we go. And we're pulling it back. And we're forward and we're back. I think you're right. I think that is, I think that is what probably will happen. And then the bars and everything will want to make the money up and stuff. So... I think it will probably be enormous next year, which I think probably means I will swerve it. But um, I was going to ask, what do you think? Do you think you'll be back next year? I don't. Will the fringe continue for you in the future? I don't envisage it, to be honest. This is my fifth in 13 years, and I've had great times up here. I feel like I've done a real range of stuff. 
but I feel like it's probably, for me now, I've come to the end of my cycle with it, I think. I mean, never say never, but it's not... I think when you're in your early 20s and you're starting on the process, there's almost this strange addiction that, you know, you go for the month, you're absolutely exhausted, you're shattered, you hate it, and then by about the 5th or 6th of September, you start going, okay, so next show, next year, what are we doing? What's the idea? It's, it's just very addictive, but I think that, for me, has now passed. I am at peace with Edinburgh. I can enjoy it for what it is. I don't feel I have to go. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and the show online? Uh, so you can find out more about the play Media Co-op Mail on, obviously, the main Ed Fringe box office and the Assembly website, and myself and Joe Von Mahler both on Twitter as well. We're the writers and the creators. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Peter. Mediocre White Mail is playing at the Assembly Roxy from the 11th until the 15th of August. This is the Peter Greenwood Show, still here at the Assembly Roxy, not the Assembly Rooms. If anybody <laughs> says differently, they're lying. I have two ladies to my right. Could you tell me your names and what you do, please? Uh, yeah, my name's Hannah. Um, I'm a cast member of Screen 9 um, here at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I'm Kate. I'm the writer and director of Screen 9, also in this gorgeous, very wet city. (laughs) How are you today? You well? Yeah, good. It's, you know, it's humid. It's damp. (laughs) (laughs) It's summer in Scotland. That's about what you Mm. can expect. Yeah. So what is your show? Tell me a little bit about it and its origin story. Yeah, of course. So it's called Screen 9 and it is a verbatim drama about the shooting that took place in 2012 in a cinema in Colorado. It is incredibly moving um, and a real turn for what we were just talking about, wet Edinburgh. Um, it's it's an, a very emotional kind of show, but it really is the survivor's story of what happened because it's so easy to just do you know, go go in and go, oh, let's let's think about the murderer and oh my gosh, all this da-da-da. But actually there are real people who were very much left behind after this happened and it's their story and, yeah. yeah. I remember this happening. I don't, I don't want to make this about me, please, yeah. but I remember this happening because I was on air at the time and I was reporting on it. It was just before The Dark Knight Rises and I refused to say the name of the individual who did it and I still refuse to say that individual's name. But... What made you want to tell this story? Because I don't mean this to sound insensitive, but there's been a couple of mass shootings. Why this particular story? That's a really good question. Um, I, like you, also remember it. I was in the cinema like the day after it happened, like in Huddersfield, and I think I sat there and I went, I can't believe that a space I think is safe was made unsafe. And I think that almost like rape of a space felt so unjust that that happened Mm. especially in like a really popular kind of film as well um and also I think as from a British like journalistic perspective as well I think there's a lot that we tend not to understand about America and the gun culture as well and the fact that as you said there has been so many so many more since like how and why and and it's it's a really interesting like um, obsession I think British people have with American culture so it's kind of tapping into that Um, we've gotten in touch with a a charity called Survivors Empowered which was set up by Jessica Garway's parents when she was um, murdered in the the shooting and you know it's very much providing therapy and it's supporting the survivors as you said it's not talking about the individual but reframing what happened and trying to put it into an interesting international context when you come to cast something like that, how do you begin to take up that kind of role of a, I assume you play a survivor, how do you 
begin to take that and make it into something? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think so. First of all, it's um, a verbatim piece, but the characters are sort of like an amalgamation of the experiences of a number of individuals. So it's not one actor playing one specific person. It's sort of like the personification of this this um, type. So I play a character named Mary, um, and Mary is sort of the, um, like I said, amalgamation of um, parents who lost children um, during the shooting. And uh, I think that there's, um, there's, you have to be very kind of conscientious and considered when approaching a role like this because on one hand you have to um, understand that you're holding material that is greater than yourself, greater than your ego, greater than, you know, all of the usual things that actors sort of go through in their own process. So you're really serving something. Um, And at the same time, you also have to understand that, um, you know, Kate has written a piece. It is not play by play. It is not reality. It is about representing a larger conversation around an event. Um, And so giving, giving myself license to be able to step in, do the job, serve the characters, and then be able also to um, step out and know that it is a job. Yeah. What's been the reaction to the to the play? Really interesting so far. We've done um, two previews um, runs. So we've done one in London at the King's Head, and then we're up in Durham at the Durham Fringe Festival as well. And I think so far, everyone's kind of come out of it and have been really moved, I think, by the story and by the the kind of wonderful banality of life. Because I think it really touches on that, you know, taking every day as it comes and trying not to take anything for granted. And quite a lot of people have come out and really spoken about that. And about, from like I said, because a lot of our audience have been obviously British, it's that difference of perspective and going, I'm trying to tap into the, the larger conversation, which is kind of tied around it. Yeah. And it's not an easy con- easy conversation, even in the United States. I mean, we look at it and we're like, okay, we can make certain assumptions about what should and shouldn't happen, but even within the United States, it's a difficult, really difficult issue that people debate every day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've tried to make it... It's so easy, especially with our social media nowadays, that we polarise everything. It is yeah. one person is saying something and they are wrong, and the other person cannot. You can't see eye to eye. Whereas I think if you create these very rich characters, and then when someone says something you disagree with, you it's so much more real. And if they're doing it in the same space, you're bringing the conversation closer together to try and find a more harmonious solution. Because I think everyone knows there is a problem, but it's what that what that solution looks like, and getting everyone on the same page. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting kind of, yeah, it, it, it puts things better into perspective, perhaps. Yeah, I think that there's like, there's especially performing this piece to a British audience, um, it, I think it really confronts the fact that there's a lot of sensationalism around US politics and like a lot of sensational, sensationalism around gun control. Um, and the I think the reality that we are trying to bring forward is that for millions of Americans, it is a far more nuanced conversation um, and and that it is harder to have, um, but it is important to lean into that rather than look at a stereotype, assume some things, condemn the person for what you assume they are, and then move on because that sort of doesn't 
do any sort of respect or justice to the fact that it is a really kind of um, deep embedded uh, conversation about identity, about American identity. Um, yeah. How are you enjoying being back up at the fringe? It's wonderful, honestly. It is. I mean, it's different. I think everyone will attest to that. It feels very different this year. But just walking down the streets and just feeling the presence of like live things and online, of course, as well this year, it is just truly incredible to be back here again. And it's our first, um, it's our debut show as a company as well. So um, some of us have been to the Fringe before, some of us haven't. I don't think you have, have you? No, this is yeah. my, I'm <laughs> popping my Fringe cherry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's like, it's great. It's really nice to be here. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing a, just a, a lot of other shows. Yeah, I just I really missed that over the last year and a half, really have. What's it like to go and see other shows when you're in a show? Do you ever sit and be like, well, that's not how I do it. I do it a different way. Can you, can you, what's the word of searching for? Can you watch a show? Yeah, I think you can. I think you can. I think it's, it's nice to like switch off your own brain sometimes and just enjoy. But I do find myself at the fringe sometimes watching shows that I would never normally go and watch and like. Like if a show's almost too similar to mine or it's like really dark verbatim stuff, like I'd love to watch that whenever whereas I'm at, I'm at the Edinburgh fringe like I want to go see some circus I want to go see some comedy I want to go see some like crazy clowning stuff mm. like I think it's an amazing opportunity to step out of your theater comfort zone and if you do that you then really won't find yourself going mm, I would have done it this way because instead you're going how the are they doing that yeah, that is yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. and how, how are you in, enjoying it for the first time up here um it's great um uh, we climbed Arthur's seat yesterday, so that's fun. <laughs> I've lived in Scotland my whole life. I was born and bred here. I've been to Edinburgh a couple times. Mm-hmm. Never done it. So oh. It's really steep. Okay. <laughs> Everyone is like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go up, no problem. And I'm there, like, sweating, and my face is red. And it was, ex- yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's it's not easy. No, it <laughs> is not. It that. is not. We, uh, we came back, had breakfast, and then I think we all napped afterwards. But yeah. aside from that, I'm, I'm loving being in Edinburgh. It's my first time also in this city. So I just, um, I think it's a beautiful city. I'm really excited to be here and sort of get amongst it. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and about the show? Well, they can find it on the Ed Fringe website, the Pleasance website. We are at the EICC. Um, we are at 8.40 this week. Oh my gosh, we open tomorrow, which is Tuesday the 10th. Sweaty armpits. Um, <laughs> and you can find us on all social media, hashtag Screen9 or at Theatre Piccolo. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Screen 9 is playing at Pleasance at the EICC in Beloman Theatre from August the 11th till the 15th, the 17th to the 22nd and the 24th until the 29th. This is the Peter Greenwood Show. We are here at the Assembly Roxy in Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival and I have three gentlemen to my right. Could we go down the line and introduce ourselves and tell me what you do, please? Hi there, Peter. My name's Arthur. I am an acrobat working with Barely Methodical Troop in the show Bromance. Hi, my name's Adam. I'm also an acrobat working in Bromance. Hi, I'm Pete. I'm also an acrobat and a seer wheeler working in Bromance. You have a good name. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So what is your show? Tell me a little bit about it. What is Bromance? Uh, Bromance is a show about male friendship. It's about um, the dynamics between three men who are just meeting each other and kind of clumsily trying to 
uh, work each other out, become friends, becoming friends in the process. Um, we use acrobatics to illustrate these um, different moments in our in our relationship. Um, we play with inclusion, exclusion, um, tenderness, uh, reconciliation. Adam, throw a few words in there. Um, I would just like to add like some it's a lot to do with like boundary pushing and kind of testing the waters um, and going on that journey between friendship about you know there is a lot of boundary testing when you are becoming friends with people um, and yeah there's there's a lots of making up falling out all that kind of stuff lots of silliness towards the end and, and kind of building that trust between the three of us we're now waiting for Pete to <laughs> tell us his thoughts about the show um, the same um. <laughs> I like the way you think. <laughs> How long did the show take to come together? What's its origin story when you were putting it together? Um, so we didn't create the show. It's not our creation. Um, the original cast created it seven years ago. Um, I'm not sure what their creative process was for the show. Um, but when we were rehearsing it, um, I think what helped us the most was kind of building, because we'd never worked together before before this. So I think just spending a lot of time together outside of the professional sense and kind of getting to know each other and our personality traits and kind of putting that on stage and finding that connection between the three of us really helped build the show because that is what is the essence of the show, essentially. And what was the rehearsal process like? Because you said you do acrobat acrobatics in the show. How, how does that play a part? Um, so we spent two weeks initially rehearsing the show. Um, this was after you know, how many months, 13, 14 months, without doing any duo or trio acrobatics. So it was a bit of an um, intense start. And um, we've performed at four other venues this year so far. And in between each run, we've gone back to the rehearsal room, trained acrobatics, tightened up certain parts of the show. And during the shows, obviously, there's a lot of work that you do just in the moment to, to kind of tighten things up and test things out. Um, but yeah, we've all been training acrobatics for, you know, 10 plus years. So it's uh, just a matter of, like Adam was saying, putting us all in the same room and seeing how we click, not just in terms of our personalities, but in terms of our like acrobatic repertoire and what we're likely to, to do. Just um, like we, we all have our own respective acrobatic instincts. So we need to put those together and work out how they fit together. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask a little bit more about that, but I know nothing about acrobatics. <laughs> I don't know any of the terms. So forgive me if I sound like an ignoramus because I know nothing about it, but how do you work that out together? What's that process like? Um, I think within the circus community, there's a lot of similar patterns that happen. I think there's you know, the certain techniques from certain backgrounds. Um, me, myself, I'm a gymnast, so I have quite a gymnastic technique, whereas Arthur comes from quite like a circus original background. And so there's, there's a lot of like crossovers in that sense. Um, so when you put the two together, it's just figuring out how you work together and, and playing with the styles. I think that's kind of what we did, wasn't it? It was just kind of... Yeah. I also want to ask, because it's been a little bit since the last kind of fringe show and there were some trying times recently. As acrobats, as performers, what was that period like? Um... I mean, that's, that, there's two parts to that question, really. One as a kind of athlete and one as uh, an artist or an entertainer, yeah. uh, however you see it. And so, I mean, 
for me as an athlete, I got really into kind of uh, weightlifting as a, as a means to replicate the, the kind of exercises I do with the person because I'm a base, I, I, I carry people. As a performer, I actually decided that um, I was going to move on from this career entirely. So I'm just about to start a degree in physiotherapy. Wow, that's cool. Um, so, so it's like a retraining career change um, time for me. So I think Pete's probably best placed to answer the question about uh, the feeling as a performer. Yeah, um, <clears throat> for me, it started out really good and it was a positive thing. Like it meant I could train a lot and work on the tricks that I hadn't had time to work on before. Um, so it started out really well, but then I got an injury. Um, so for a lot of the time, it was just trying to rest and work out how to fix that injury and more focus on that. So it took me to a bit of a depressing state after a while and it was more just focusing on pushing on and dealing with the injury to eventually get back into the theatres and stuff. It must feel very good to be back in front of people, in front of audiences again. That experience must be really good. Mm. Mm. It is. I mean, audiences are so appreciative of live theatre or, you know, any, any kind of like performing art at the moment. And we can really feel that. And, and it's lovely having gone through this process as a, as a trio and finding ourselves at the Fringe Festival. Because it's at this point just, um, you know, circumstantially that we really feel like we're clicking and gelling on stage and exploring the show and making it our own. And we get to do that in front of a, a, an especially appreciative audience. It's, it's really perfect timing in that respect. Where can people find out more about you and about the show? Uh, I mean, we've got, we've got quite a lot of social media happening at the moment. Uh, we're doing a big push on the marketing side of things. So we have Twitter and Instagram. And in terms of the show at The Fringe, we're on The Fringe website. Um, but yeah, I don't know where else we are, really. There's, there's quite a lot of um, YouTube content from the three yeah. uh, original cast members of... Um, Barely Methodical Troop. So if you, you know, go to the Instagram handle, Barely Methodical Troop or BN Troop, you can kind of go through the archive and see where the companies come from, see all the distinct, ac distinct acrobatic styles. There's a repertoire of three shows as well. So there's also Kin, the second show, which has six members of the cast. And then there's Shift, which is the most recent show. I think that's five. Um, and there's more in the works at the moment. So watch that space. It must be kind of cool as an, as an athlete to watch people growing in front of you like having that archive on Instagram or Twitter or whatnot that must be really cool to see yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not on Instagram anymore so I don't I don't know how to answer that question <laughs> well thank you very much for your time today guys pleasure Peter thank, thank you, you. Sir, thank you for having us Bromance is playing at Assembly George Square Gardens, the Palais du Variety, from the 11th until the 15th, the 17th until the 22nd, and the 24th until the 29th of August. And that is it for today's episode of the show Up at the Fringe. More interviews coming soon. Stay tuned. Until next time, my name is Peter Greenwood. Bye, every single body. Bye. <laughs>